times they wondered, will God ever fulfill his promises? Me, that God was working and bringing about his purposes, but on his time. We saw last week uh, some of the women in Jesus' genealogy, and particularly focused on Rahab the prostitute. And again, uh, if we'd been living then and hearing stories of the people of God, we couldn't have made any sense of it. And yet now at this remove, looking back, we see that God was bringing redemption, not in spite of all this brokenness, but through it. Not in spite of broken people, but through broken people. And so I'm hoping that this will be both solemnizing and very encouraging to us, particularly at those places in our lives or in our nation's history or the history of the church in the nation, when we tend to look at things and think that we have sufficient context to know what's going on. The only way ever to interpret scripture or life correctly is from the cross. It is only from the cross of Jesus Christ where God ultimately revealed himself. Jesus said, I, when I'm lifted up, will be glorified. As we look at him upon the cross, we don't see a crucified victim, but the crucified victor, the one who by entering into our pain and shame and taking our brokenness and sin upon himself, destroyed its power to separate us from him and kick down death's doors from the inside out. So I want us this morning to continue on this theme and look at these two figures that uh, we just were reintroduced to, uh, Hezekiah and Manasseh. But I want to set a little historic context. First, let me read this one section, verses 6 through 11 of Matthew 1, that catches their part and their place in this genealogy. David was the father, I'm beginning with verse 6, it's second half. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Father, don't let me get in the way of what you want to say to us by your spirit through your word. And I ask this in Jesus' majestic name, amen. Let me set the context a little bit for you. Say this too. If you were to ask any student of the Bible, who was one of the, name three or four of the great kings, the best kings of Israel, almost certainly one of them would be Hezekiah. And if you were asked who were the worst kings in Judah after the division of the kingdom, who were the absolute worst? Almost certainly one of the first that would be spoken of would be Manasseh. So hold that in mind as I quickly go back and tell this history again. 
David, this great man of God, the man after God's own heart, whom we celebrate, whose psalms some of us pray every day at the start of our devotions, the one who was a, a, a type of the one who was to come, a type of Christ, the Davidic Messiah modeled on David. David, as we saw, when he became old, became an absolute wreck of a man, not just physically, but morally, ethically, spiritually. We see him at the end, this bitter old man croaking to his son Solomon, whom he has anointed to follow him, Bathsheba's son, not to let this one die in peace, nor that one, the great, his cousin Joab, who had been the general of his armies and had protected David and had been steadfast for the Lord at times when David wasn't and had dared to speak to the king on the Lord's behalf and call him back to a path of obedience. David said to Solomon, don't let him go to the grave in peace. Don't let his white hairs go down to Sheol in peace. Kill him before he dies, which Solomon did. So this great man, the man after God's own heart, ends horribly. Then his son Solomon, who begins so well, God says to him, what would you have? What, I'll give you whatever you ask. And he says, I'm like a little child. I can't go in or out unless you take me by the hand. Just give me the wisdom that I need to, to shepherd your people well. And God said, because you haven't asked for wealth or power, I'm going to give you all of those things as well as wisdom. And the first sign we're given in the Bible of his wisdom is that he saves the life of a child of a prostitute. You probably remember the story. We don't have time to relate it, but if you don't, go back and read it. It's fascinating. His wisdom in determining which was the real mother. And that was the sign of his wisdom. And his reputation began to grow. His wealth, his power. And as he grew old, he began to make marriage alliances with other nations and bring in wives who worshiped other gods and let them build their temples. And he had, I think it says 3,000 concubines. I can't even get my mind around this. This huge harem. I mean, I remember an old preacher one time saying that and saying, can you imagine all those stockings hanging in the bathroom? You know, 3,000. 3, I can't get, people don't do that anymore, I know, old time. But his heart, we read that his heart went away from God. And his heart went after the gods of, of these women that he'd married. And in the end, the one who first showed his wisdom by saving a child of a prostitute sacrifices some of his own children to these foreign gods. And so, when he dies and his son Rehoboam becomes king, Rehoboam was just an idiot. I don't know a nicer way to say it than that in words that can be used in church. Uh, the guy was just, he, he lost the kingdom immediately. It divided because he had a choice to make and he listened to the young idiots around him instead of to the wise old man that had advised his father. And so the kingdoms divided between north and south. Ten of the tribes 
say, we have no part in you, and they go with Jeroboam and form the northern kingdom, and they keep the name Israel. Benjamin had been pretty absorbed within Judah, and those from the other tribes who wanted to worship the true God in Jerusalem left and went down and lived among the, the tribe of Judah, and that's why they became Jews, because named after Judah. So you have Israel and Judah, north and south. The southern kingdom had some good godly kings. The northern kingdom never did, and they went from bad to worse. And God sent his prophets to them to warn them, judgment is coming if you don't stop your idolatry and your injustice and cruelty and turn back to me. They never did. There was no revival in the north. And so finally, the cruel, powerful Assyrians who were the ones in ascendance in the Middle East in that day. And they were noted for their cruelty. We have reliefs that show them with their prisoners with hooks in their nose, dragging them along. What they would do is they would conquer you and then they'd give you a choice. We can either just slaughter you all or we will carry you away. They knew that if they let people stay on their land and keep their culture, that they'd revolt and want their country back. So they would scatter all the people they conquered and mix them up in lands not their own so that they'd lose their cultural identity. That's where the Samaritans of the New Testament came from. They were the ones brought in by the Assyrians to fill the gap when they carried off the northern kingdom. But in the south, there was a king whose name was Ahaz, not Ahab, Ahaz, and he was as wicked as Ahab. And he looked up and saw these powerful Assyrians destroying everything in their path, and he decided that Israel shouldn't worship the Lord. They should worship the gods of the nations. And he filled the, the, the city of Jerusalem, filled the temple with idols, and worship ceased. He led the people into all sorts of blasphemous idolatry. And God sent his prophets and said, if you don't repent, the same thing's going to happen to you. He died, and his son, Hezekiah, was born. And the reason that we remember Hezekiah as such a great king is that we read he was not like his father Ahaz, but rather like David. He cleansed the city, the temple, all the cities of Judah from the idols and cast them all out, cast out the priests, cast out everyone that was involved in it and restored worship of, of the living God, restored proper worship to Israel and celebrated the Passover for the first time in ages. So there was this huge revival. And he was a man who, in every way for a long time, sought to walk with the Lord, and the Lord just prospered him. But all the while, the Assyrians were working their way down further south. And finally, Sennacherib, I love his name, Sennacherib, the, the king of the Assyrians, reached the land of Judah and began taking their cities. And Hezekiah saw him coming and he told the people, be brave, trust in the Lord. But he was beginning to get worried as one city after another fell. And finally, Sennacherib and his troops were outside Jerusalem. And he sent his men to speak in Hebrew so that the people on the wall would understand. The 
the Judeans said, please speak to us in Aramaic, you know, so that the people, no, no, this concerns their lives. And they announced from outside the wall, has any God of any nation been able to stop us? Do you think that your God can stop us? He can't stop us. Do what we say, surrender the city and we'll carry you away and you can live in peace wherever we send you. And Hezekiah sent word to the prophet Isaiah and said, you hear the blasphemies that he's speaking against the Lord. Will the Lord save us? And Isaiah said, he's going to hear a rumor and he's going to leave and you won't, he won't come into the city. But as he left, he did hear a rumor, he did start to leave, but he, he sent a letter to the king that said, I'll be back, a little like Arnold, I'll be back. And no one has ever stopped me. And Hezekiah went into the house of the Lord and spread that letter before the Lord and said, Lord, look, you know, look at the blasphemies that he's making against you. This is against you. And Isaiah the prophet sent word to him, the Lord has heard your prayer. And so when Sennacherib went home to Assyria, he was worshiping in his temple and two of his sons killed him. And Hezekiah, like David and like Solomon, began to think, you know what? I'm the man, God loves me, you know. I've got it together, I've become wealthy, look at what a great king I am, look at this. And his heart began to be filled with pride and he became desperately sick and he was told, you're going to die. And he called for Isaiah and this was not his finest, finest moment. He just, he just cried like a baby. Like, I can't die, don't let me die. So Isaiah said to him, I have some good news and some bad news. Here they both are. You will live 15 more years. I'm not sure I'd want to know, you know. Set the clock. What the, you know, 15 more years you've been given. And he was, he was delighted. And he just began to preen. And if we had had time to read more of the verses, the ones actually in Chronicles, just before the verses that Ken read about Manasseh, it says that Hezekiah's heart began to be filled with pride. And the Lord began to test him in his pride and that finally the Lord just let him go in his pride to see what was in his heart. And the rising nation that was beginning to become a threat to Assyria, which was the Babylonians, who would end up defeating the Assyrians and becoming the dominant force, were going around now testing out to see who are our possible allies or, you know, people that we might have to fight in the future. So they say, well, you know, the king over there was sick. Let's send some presents and say, we're so glad you're well. And Hezekiah just said, let me show you everything. So, I mean, he took them through the palace and through the city and showed them all of the wealth where everything was. Just in his pride and his arrogance, he showed the Babylonians everything that they would later use to know how to get into Jerusalem and take the city with no problem. And so the prophet comes to him in the verses that we heard. And Isaiah says, what did you show them? I showed them everything. Showed them my 
you know, my app with my retirement fund. I showed him, you know. I mean, he didn't hide anything. Showed him the whole thing. And Isaiah just says, do you realize what you've done? You have put in jeopardy, in your pride and your arrogance, all of the people of Israel. They are going to come. They are going to conquer this city. And they're going to take away some of your sons and castrate them and make them eunuchs to serve in the, in the palace in Babylon. And what is Isaiah's response? What the Lord has said is good, and it says, because he thought, as long as it doesn't happen in my lifetime. You know, you compare that to Moses, who, when the Lord said, this people have sinned unutterably, I'm going to destroy them, and Moses, I will raise up an easier people for you to lead. I'll give you some, you know, sometimes in my youth in ministry, those days when I thought this church doesn't have any problems that a few funerals wouldn't solve. Um, and I, I'm sure the people thought one would do nicely. You know, that would take care of everything. I, you know, you would, you would think, would you give me another bunch, Lord? But Moses said, if you destroy these people, what are the nations going to say? The nations will say, he was able to bring them out, but he couldn't bring them in. And I don't want to live in a world where your name is not revered. So if you're going to destroy them, I ask you, please, destroy me with them. And God was pleased. Paul prayed exactly that way in the book of Romans, when in chapter 9 he says, I could wish for the sake of my people that I myself could be accursed if it would save them. There's the heart of Christ, you see. Moses could not die for the sins of Israel. Paul could not die for the sins of the church. But Jesus did. But they pleased God because they had his heart. Here is the man whom we remember as one of the greatest kings of Israel, who at the end of the day said, I don't really care what happens even to my own kids once I'm gone, as long as I am comfortable. And you contrast that very quickly with his son, who was the most wicked one. He became king when he was a kid, and he ruled 55 years. And he just was worse than his grandfather uh, Ahaz. He got rid of worship of God. He filled the place with idols. He sacrificed some of his own children, as Solomon had done in his old age. And prophet after prophet went to him and warned him. And sure enough, before the Babylonians came and conquered the place, kind of as a last gasp, the Assyrians showed up again. Sennacherib was dead, but his sons weren't. And they showed up and put bronze shackles on Manasseh and a hook through his nose and led him off as a captive to Babylon. And when he was there, he cried out to the Lord. We don't read that he asked even to be saved from captivity. He cried out for forgiveness. He realized that God was God and that these prophets who had come to him were not false prophets, the ones who had warned him, but they were prophets of the living God. And he just cried out to God for forgiveness. And God heard his cry and forgave him and restored him. And if we'd had time to read on, 
He cleaned the idols out of the city. He restored worship of the living God, and as long as he lived, Israel worshiped the Lord. Now, why do I speak of that when I've said we're going to talk about the breaking of nations? Because nations are like people, aren't they? You look at the history of Israel, you just look at the judges before they even had kings. God delivers them. He saves them. And what happens? As soon as they're comfortable, as soon as they go a few generations of prosperity, they forget about God. They go their own way. God warns them. They don't listen. So He sends oppressors, and they capture them and oppress them. And then they cry out to the Lord, now we, re we remember, please save us. And He raises up a judge and rescues them. And they're really good for a little while, and then they go down. It's the story of the nation. It's what we're living through today in our country. It's exactly what we're seeing. It is every country in history that when, it, when we first have to fight for freedom, when people have to, have to struggle in order to make a living and to make a life, they raise their children with discipline and honor, and the children hear that and remember the stories, and they follow, but their children too often become entitled and think this is our life, and then the next generation becomes cynical and says, why would we want to believe what those people believed? Why would we want to do what those people did? And it collapses again. Now, I don't want to end on a downer. <laughs> this is the message. Manasseh's hard times, his horrible days, his worst days, his worst nightmares were better for him than Hezekiah's good days were for him. I doubt there's anybody in this room who enjoys the comforts of life more than I. I do not want to live through persecution and trouble. But I've lived long enough to tell you, and a lot of you have experienced this, that the times that I have grown most in my life and the times that I have known the greatest intimacy with Christ have been the times I never would have chosen, the hardest times, what I would at the time have described as the worst of times, but what God took and made the best of times. And that is the history that we live. We cannot read history linearly. We can't read the Bible linearly. If you just read from Genesis through Revelation, none of it makes any sense until you reach the New Testament. But if you make the cross the center and you read out from there, then suddenly all of it makes sense. And you realize that what God is doing in your life and in my life, in your family and in my family, in this nation and the nations of the world, is that he is bringing things at last to his appointed end where those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are standing round the throne singing the song of the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed men to God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign 
in all the earth. God is raising up in the hardest places of history, in the midst of Ukraine right now, in parts of North Korea unknown to us as he did in China when we thought there were no Christians and discovered that the church had grown faster there under persecution than it had ever grown anywhere else in human history. One story and I'm done. We've got a congregational meeting. Bill, I'm sorry, I promised Bill Dybert I'd be brief. Uh, You be brief, Bill. I wasn't. Um, I don't know how many of you ever heard the great Romanian Christian Joseph Tsan uh, speak, tremendous theologian, thinker, uh, a great preacher. Uh, When my older brother was in his residency of surgery, Massachusetts General Hospital had an exchange program with Southampton Chest Clinic in Britain, and he went for one semester to do chest surgery there. And while he was there, he went to, uh, I love the name of the church, it was called Above Bar Baptist Church because it was over a pub. Um, (laughs) But Peter Tsan at that time, or Joseph Tsan, was studying at Oxford, and he was memorizing tomes of theology to take back to Romania, which was under Ceausescu. And he'd been warned not to return. They said, we'll arrest you and imprison you. And when he finished his course and they had an evening service to commission him to go back, my brother told me that as they realized we're all going home, he's getting on an airplane where they're waiting to arrest him. He said they all began to weep. And Joseph said, don't weep for me, I weep for you. My decision is easy, all I have to do is go back and step off that plane and my course is set, my reputation is fixed. But how do you, in your freedom, even know where to stand each day? How do you know what it means even to follow Christ in the confusions of an affluence. In other words, brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't save us to give us the cherry on top of the wonderful life that most of us have. He saved us to make us part of what he's doing in human history in every part of this world in order to redeem for himself in the midst of the brokenness of the nations, the brokenness of our families. You've got a child who's broken. You don't know the end of the story. You've got a Manasseh. You don't know the end of the story. You might pray harder for your little Hezekiah and be a little more relieved about your Manasseh. I mean, we don't know what God is doing. We don't see the end, but we see the cross and we see the promise of God that he is going to make all things new. He will wipe away our tears. He who said it is finished will one day say, now let it all begin again. Father, how we thank you that in the midst of the brokenness of our lives and our families and our nation and the nations of the world, nothing is holding back your hand. You are sovereign. You are working your purposes out. And so I pray that We will live with confidence and even find our joy in the midst of places where we, apart from you, apart from the gospel, could never find it. And I pray this in Jesus' name 
Amen. If you've got kiddos, please go get them and come right back.